0: We thank you that in the name of Jesus, there is power, power to break every chain. And we thank you that you give us your word as strength to break the chains. Lord, your word tells us through Paul that let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And so we pray at this point, God, that you would inhabit us with your word, that you would influence these young ones through your word, that you would show us your power in your word, that we might be a changed people from this place. Lord, without your spirit working in us, we are dead people. We can't hear, we can't see, we can't move. And so we ask that you would meet with us now through your word and through your teachers and through this weak vessel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'd like to welcome you. Faith into our third week in our Colossians series. This is the third. We've been in a uh, series on the Epistle of Paul to the Colossians. Uh, this happens to be the third week, and this is the third chapter uh, where we uh, we are looking at Paul's words to this young church that he actually was not the church planter of, but he had sent one of his uh, apostle agents, uh, Epaphras, who was a prayer wrestler. Uh, to this uh, small city. Uh, it's often considered like an out of, you know, backwater city uh, in the Lycus Valley. And uh, and so Paul decides to send a Ap- Epaphras to this city. You know, God is a God that goes to small towns. You know, I was born in a small town, Jesus comes to a small town. And so here's this out. Of small town backwater place that uh, a church has been planted, and so Paul encourages this young congregation to remain rooted and established in their faith, and that is the theme of this book: is the call for believers to remain rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith. And last week, Pastor Stan uh, revealed uh, to us some of the forces that were tempting. Uh, to have them uprooted. Two particular subversive uh, and seductive forces, errors that were seeking to dislodge this young church. One was the mystic spiritualism, uh, which was a subjective experience uh, that that sought to subordinate the objective word of God. Uh, And probably today, uh, you might hear people say, uh, well, I'm not a religious person, but I'm a spiritual person. And it's kind of independently... Uh, defined. That was very much present in, the, in, that, in that day as well. And then there's religious legalists that uh, Stan talked about, uh, or moralism, where it looked at uh, human rules and human commands uh, that had this false humility that really had no power to do a work of changed lives. And so Paul in Colossians is calling this young church back to Christ, to the truth of their salvation and back to their roots. And in this passage that we're going to look at this morning from Colossians 3, he uses the word hidden lives, uh, their hidden lives with Christ. And that is another uh, more, more defined way to talk about what it means to be a rooted Christian. So let's look at Colossians 3.1. put to death therefore whatever is earthly in you sexual immorality impurity passion evil desire and covetousness which is idolatry on account of these the wrath of god is coming and these you too once walked when you were living in, in them but now you must put them away all away anger wrath malice slander and obscene talk from your mouth kindness, humility, and meekness and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Yesterday, I had a flashback. to my own roots. Uh, on my mother's side of the family, we had a family reunion at a nearby park. Uh, and this, this is my grandfather uh, as a young man, Alfred Arthur Lehman. He was born in August the 13th, 1893, which is actually the 1893 is when this, this building that we're sitting in was built. But he was born uh, in Marion, Kansas uh, on a family farm uh, he went to school through eighth grade. That's what, the school you graduated in eighth grade. And, uh, and then, sometime later, he was drafted into the Army and went off to fight in, the, in France in World War I uh, in June 1918. And when he came back uh, from that war, somehow he moved to Baltimore. And you would find my grandfather in the Baltimore City, some street corner, where laborers would go and would seek to have someone hire them and he was hoping that someone would hire him so that he could show forth his carpentry skills and it happened to be a man by the name of Mr. Dietz uh, from Randallstown came and hired my grandfather and my grandfather moved to Granite, Maryland which is where some of us here have been from, yes, I have a shout out And uh, he rented a room and a house there in Granite, Maryland. Uh, Soon afterward, uh, he met my grandmother, Martha Fisher. Uh, They got married. Actually, my grandfather is actually rather short, but my grandmother is rather tall. Uh, And so she's sitting there. (laughs) They got married. They had five children. Uh, four daughters and a son, and I guess Marie and I have carried on that tradition. And that's my mom on the far right, uh, top corner. Standing, yes. My my grand my grandfather uh, was a carpenter farmer, and uh, and I grew up just houses away next to uh, his farm, which was behind our home, and actually it was my grandfather's house my aunt and uncle's house, another aunt and uncle's house, and our house. I mean, this was about as close to the Waltons as you can experience. And this big farm behind us. And uh, it was uh, really a lassie kind of childhood. But my grandfather mainly raised corn. Uh, But in middle school, my grandfather decided uh, to plant on his farm uh, 22,000 Christmas trees. And so when I was in middle school, I helped plant these 22,000 Christmas trees. And every summer, uh, as a kid, I would go out there and start trimming these trees. And it took about seven years for a Christmas tree to grow up and and, uh, to be tall enough for Christmas. And I learned a lot about work and about labor and about farming. And uh, when I was 15 years old, I surrendered my life to Christ. I got captivated by who Jesus was, surrendered my life uh, to him. And when I was 18 years old, I found myself walking around the perimeter of this Christmas tree farm, praying, uh, just talking to God. And, I, I, and that became some of the most precious times in my Christian uh, life. And as I think about prayer walking, and of course we do prayer walks around Penn, Lucy, and in various places in Baltimore, I start realizing that the origins of my prayer walk took place back in my roots on a Christmas tree farm. And by the way, there is a prayer walk that's gonna happen this uh, Friday night at 6.30, and we're meeting at the Walter P. Carter School Grounds. But, um, you know, I don't really think a whole lot about my roots, you know, about that kind of past. I think it's just is just part of who I am. But I realize that it really has been very formative to who I am. And it, it's important for people to remember the strength of their roots." Uh, That is what uh, was recently emphasized in the recontextualization of Roots, the History Channel TV series which emphasizes uh, the book of Roots by Alex Haley that he wrote in 1976, where he traced his own ancestors back to Gambia, West Africa, following the path to the United States as slaves and then forwarding in their freedom. And Haley claimed that Kunta Kinta was based on one of his ancestors, a Gambian man who was born in 1750, enslaved and then taken to America. Uh, Kunta Kinta's father's name uh, was Amora, and he was a warrior uh, from the uh, Mandinkas tribe in Jufur. Uh, And Amora made it very clear to his son Uh, Kunta Kinta, that knowing and remembering and valuing his name was so vital to his identity and his dignity. And the narrative of of Roots explores the brutal realities of slave life and the impact on the bodies and on the psyches of the enslaved who were being forced to take on new slave identities and new slave names, and Kunta Kinta was whipped and beaten near to the point of death uh, to take on the false name of Toby. And in one of the reoccurring scenes in Roots, you'll find the, a reinforcement of the identity and the dignity of these, of these babies and of these young men as they fought against the dehumanization and Kunta Kinta's father, Amora, and the other generations would take their child and raise their child uh, in a, before a starry sky. And, and uh, Amora would say, Kunta Kinta, behold the only thing greater than yourself. Well, here in Colossians, and in this third chapter, God, through the apostle Paul, is calling believers to fight for their roots to fight for their foundations in Christ to fight for the dignity and the realities of their identities in Christ Therefore as you received Christ Jesus the Lord so walk in him rooted and built up in him You know we're tempted to disconnect from our roots and the identities that we have in Christ we're we let other identities take precedent and preeminence in our hearts. And so Paul calls these Colossians, and he calls us to fight. And here Paul further elaborates on the rooted life as a hidden life. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden in, with Christ in God. What does it mean to have a hidden life? What Does Paul, what is he trying to get at? Well, it means before the world, the Christian's true identity, their new selves in Christ, will be a secret truth hidden from view of others until they die or until the Lord appears. Uh, N.T. Wright says this, The life of Christians thus becomes part of the mystery, the secret plan of God, to be revealed to the world at the end of time, that... Life is not just hidden with Christ in God. It actually is Christ himself, the hope of glory. We heard in the passage that from Isaiah 25 that we read today where the person is talking about the glories of heaven, and, and it says, We have waited for him, the anticipation of the coming of God. And T Wright continues, The Christian hopes not merely for the coming of the Lord, but for the full revelation of what he or she already is. Then will it be seen with what faithful diligence and perseverance many outwardly unsuccessful and forgotten Christian workers have served their Lord. Paul, the prisoner of an eccentric Jew to the Romans and a worse than Gentile traitor to the Jews, will be seen as Paul the apostle, the servant servant of the Lord. The Colossians, insignificant ex pagans from a third rate country town, will be seen in a glory with which, if we're now to appear, one might be tempted to worship. And so, Paul is calling believers, and he's calling us not to cave in to false identities, not to deny who we are in Christ, uh, but uh, to live out the hidden lives that we have, to stay rooted in Christ. And Paul shows us the character. He shows us the the disciplines and the actions of what it means to be a rooted Christian, to live a hidden life. Uh, And he gives uh, these three things in this passage. It's a hidden life is one that has a mind that is set, that is an old man that is slain, and that is a new man that is adorned. So first, it's a mind that is set. If you Have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on the earth. God's purposes in salvation is to produce truly human beings, to recreate us as what we are designed and meant to be as human beings in Christ. Living out the image of Christ in our lives, the primacy uh, in Christian behavior flows... First, from an attitude that happens in our minds, uh, there's really no excuse for not feeding our mind on the truth. We, this is the first thing that Paul is calling believers to: Set your mind, focus your minds, seek the things with your mind, on the things above. Uh, later in this passage, it says, "Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly." Uh, It's been said that someone who truly understands who he or she is in Christ is further along the road to genuine holiness than someone who is in confusion, anxiously imagining that the new life is the result rather than the starting point of the daily battle with temptation. And so we're called to fill our minds. Paul, at the beginning of Colossians, says, I have not ceased to pray for you that you might be filled with the knowledge of God, full of understanding and wisdom. Uh, so that you might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And it begins with right thinking, right believing, changes our hearts and our lives to, so that we might live right, bearing fruit in all good things. And so the, the mind that is set. But then he talks about an old man that is slain. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. You know, this passage is, uh, he, he begins this section talking about, you know, don't don't set your minds on things on the earth, but on things that are above. You know, when I started reading, I said, well, what are those things, you know? Uh, we have some descriptions of heaven, even Isaiah 25 talked about it's going to be this great banquet, a great feast of the greatest, the best foods and the aged wines, and, and we, we have these uh, we images of of heaven, but there's so much about heaven we don't know. We just know it's going to be glorious, it's going to be great, it's just going to get better and better every single day. It's just going to get better, uh, but we don't have a huge amount of information. Well, what is Paul talking about? The things of heaven. Set your mind on things of heaven. Don't set your minds on things on the earth. Well, in the he actually gives us what the things on the earth are about and what things are. Heaven, about in this particular passage. Uh, here in verses 5 and following, he shows us what are the things on the earth. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death. And it's a declaration of war. Um, again, N.T. Wright says the old taboos, the old, t- uh, and he talks about in the former passage, where people would have all this, you know, don't do this, don't taste this, don't touch this. And he was talking about all the religious moralism that had all this false humility. And he said, the old taboos put the wild animals of lust and hatred into cages. There they remain alive and dangerous, a constant threat to their captor. Paul's solution is more drastic. The animals are to be killed. (laughs) The old method of holiness attacks symptoms. The true method goes for the root. And so Paul is not playing. He is saying we have to kill these earthly things. You know, the Christian life is not about perfection, but it is about a fight. It is about a warfare. Uh, And some, some believers think that well, I just received Jesus, and I can know that I go to heaven, but it doesn't really matter what I do here. And so, like in Romans 6, Paul condemns the Romans for taking the grace of God for granted. And we find here that Paul is calling believers to do warfare, to kill those things of the earth that are in the person. And so Christians belong to a new age. And we need a clean break with the old life. And Paul gets a very specific, uh, so that he leaves no question about what are these beasts that need to be killed. And he talks sexual immorality, intercourse outside of marriage, impurity, contamination of the character by immoral behavior, or passion and lust, any overmastering passions. Uh, he says here evil desire, actually in the Greek there is not the word evil, but The desire is actually an over-desire, an inordinate affections, good things. It could be relationships. It could be your job. It could be your children. It could be anything in our society that could be considered good, good gifts from God. But these good gifts become ultimate gifts, and he's saying these become evil passions. And he says, and greed or covetousness, which is idolatry or false worship. And so the reality is is that these things are competing for preeminence in our hearts. They are seeking to be first place. They are seeking to subordinate Christ and to become first place. And Paul is saying these things need to be uh, killed. And, and often what happens when people don't get their passions or their desires or their lusts, well then we find they become angry, and there's wrath, and there's malice, and there's slander, and there's obscene talk, and there's lying. And so we see the results of what false worship brings. And probably one of the most painful illustrations for us in this, this last week is what happened in Orlando, and the destruction of a person who was taken over by such, such anger and such wrath and so Paul is saying, for believers, there should be no place for this, and that this must be fought. I was, uh, I was encouraged. Uh, a brother uh, put me on his list as an accountability partner for his, um, his web, uh, you know, for his computer, so that I would be one of an accountability partner. You know, that meant a lot to me that he would trust me with that. And I have other brothers uh, that have... Uh, my weekly reports. uh, And the reason I do that, because I know how the flesh will want to take over my heart and my affections. And it's important. And this is warfare. This is the warfare that we're called to do. And so, Paul encourages us towards uh, slaying the old man, setting the heart, and then finally tells us, to put on, to, the, uh, to adorn the new man. Put on that. And it's like a, a clothing. He's like, put this, put this on. And what is, it, what is it he wants believers to put on? He wants them to put on kindness and compassion and humility and meekness and patience and bearing and forbearance and forgiveness. These are the attributes ultimately of Christ, of love. This is really a call, a manifesto of love, is it not? The necessity we find here, however, is that this kind of manifesto of love takes place in a community of love. It implies that you're a part of vitally connected to the body of Christ. That your relationship with a community of faith is implicit in this. And you cannot grow to the maturity that God has called you to grow without such a covenantal relationship within the body of Christ and with other believers. You, we need each other. We need each other to walk with, to grow with. And you know, this is one of the hard things about church is because it's messy, because we're messy people. But this is the means and the framework that Christ has called us into in order to grow up in Christ. And so Paul is giving us a flow of what it means to be uh, a Christian whose life is hidden in Christ. Uh, and, And it shows that he's one who adorns and clothes himself with love, who clothes himself ultimately with Christ. He goes to this point that forgive each other as Christ has forgiven you. And in each one of these incidences, he's going back to Christ, back to Christ. Set your minds on things above where Christ is seated with God. And so he constantly is showing these believers where the source of the power that they have to do this warfare and to put on these hard clothes sometimes to love, to forgive. The only way that you and I can have the power to fight this fight and to love this love is by having an overwhelming experience and an understanding and knowledge of Jesus Christ himself. The problem for the Colossians is that they were being distracted from who Christ was. And Paul was telling them, no. Christ is the image of the invisible God. The fullness of his deity dwells in him. He is the firstborn among creation. He is the, he, he, he is the one who has reconciled you to God. And so he gives the glories and the beauty of Christ, and he says, and you have died. You have died with Christ, and you have risen with Christ, and you have ascended with Christ. And so he is referring and bringing Christ back again and again and again. Albert Barnes says this, this is ...to us a most precious truth. We have a Savior who is in no respect deficient in wisdom, power, and grace to redeem and save us. There is nothing necessary to be done in our salvation which He has not qualified to do. There is nothing which we need to enable us to perform our duties to meet temptation and to bear trial... ...which He is not able to impart. In no situation of trouble and danger will the church find that there is a deficiency in Him and no enterprise to which she can put her hands will there be a lack of power in her great head to enable her to accomplish what he calls her to. We may go to him in all our troubles, weaknesses, temptations, and wants, and may be supplied from his fullness. Just as if we were thirsty, we might go to the ocean of pure water and drink. The idea of going to the, pure, uh, to the ocean... And drinking, he wants us to see that this is the Christ that we have and to come to him. He talks, finally, about this glory. He talks about the glory that we have. And he talks in, in Colossians about that, that God shows them to make known the greatness of his mercy to the Gentiles, the riches of of his glory and the majesty which, Christ, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He keeps coming back to the glory that we have. He talks about that when Christ, your life appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Do you ever think about your glory? You think about your glory? You should. <laughs> you should think about your glory. You know, When we think about glory, we normally think about God's glory. We think about Christ's glory, and that is appropriate, and it's important for us to see that first. Glory, which means, that's where we get the word worship, doxology, doxa, praise, honor, glory, brightness, uh, majesty, excellence, preeminence, dignity, all these things. He says, of that condition which God the Father in heaven, to which Christ has raised after he had received his work, on earth. So Christ is ascended into glory. But this is the other part it says, the glorious condition of the blessedness into which is appointed and promised that true Christians shall enter after their Savior's return from heaven. If you believer could see the glory that you presently possess, or if you could see, believer, the others in this space would presently possess, we would be blinded. Uh, C.S. Lewis says this, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which If you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. There are no ordinary people. (laughs) Can you see my glory? Hardly. You know, but if you could see who I really am in Christ, you would be blinded. You know, Moses came down from from uh, Mount Sinai, after being in God's presence for 40 days, and the people said, please put you know, a lid over this. You are blinding us. You, Christian, have this glory. You, Christian, have the f- a fullness in you of Christ that you don't even recognize. It is your identity, it is your dignity. Yesterday at this family reunion, uh, I have a cousin, He's some years older than me, and I hadn't seen him for years, and his his name is Ron, Ron Bossom. Uh, he was a pastor in Northern Virginia, and I said, how are you doing? He says, uh, well, I'm Pastor Emeritus now. Uh, I've been a Pastor Emeritus for a year and a half. I said, really? Yeah, and he had a stroke uh, a c- couple years ago, and Ron uh lost the right half of his brain in that stroke. He told me before that stroke, he could read 1,800 words a minute. He would read five books a week, and I knew that he was bright. I didn't know he was that bright. He said the most humiliating thing for him was after the stroke, he could not read. And besides not reading, of course, he didn't have his job. And he said, So much of my identity was built around being a pastor and being in this job. I, he said, I really lost so much of who I was. And I was frightened, I was scared. In therapy, he learned how to use the left side of his brain. And over time, He's learned to read, and he's, I mean, if you were to talk to him, you would not necessarily know that he he had this stroke, but clearly there has been a huge loss in his life. He now provides therapy for other stroke patients, and he says, the thing that I see in their face when I walk in is the expression of fear. They feel afraid. Something has damaged them, has broken into their lives, and they feel all of those things. And you know, Christian, each one of us battle with fears. Fears of whether we're going to be loved. Fears of whether we're going to be respected. Fears of whether we're going to be provided for. We have all kinds of fears that will seek to dominate us. Jesus comes to us, and he says, I'm your sufficiency. I'm your dignity. I'm your glory. You know, he calls us here, Paul calls us, to set our minds on things above, to, to kill the old man, to put on the new man. Well, Jesus set his heart on something, Jesus set his affections on something. He set his affections on you, Christian. He set his affections on you, church. God says in the Old Testament that my eyes and my heart are always on the temple, the place of his name, the worship of God's people. Jesus talks about when he went to Jerusalem that he set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. And what was he thinking about? He was thinking about you. He set his mind and his heart on you, Christian. And Jesus died for you. And Jesus put on love for you. And Jesus rose for you. And because of that, we can live for him, and we can fight for him, and we can encourage each other for him. Let's do that. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you give us this passage as a means to show forth the glory that we have in you, Lord, that we can live hidden lives, obscure lives that no one sees because we know that you see all things. We know that you see the secret prayers that we make for others that nobody else hears. We know that you see when we read the scriptures early in the morning when it's still dark, God, we know that you see the deeds that we do and the perseverance that we have in our tears you save in bottles. God, you know all these things, and it's precious to you because we're precious to you. We thank you because of Jesus' love for us. And so, God, strengthen us. Help us to live in the glory of our hidden lives that we might be faithful in this fight, in this life, that we might draw other lost children, lost sons and daughters to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, beyond all that you could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus, both now and forevermore. Amen.